I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Song of Songs. Song of Songs, chapter 5, is where I want to direct your attention. Now, you'll find the little book of the Song of Songs in the Hebrew Scriptures, the first half of your Bible. Um, it's uh, tucked away between the large books of Psalms and Isaiah. So if you're in uh, Psalm, turn right. If you're in Isaiah, turn left. Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Uh, And I would like you to turn to uh, chapter 5. We're going to read from that chapter in just a moment. But I'd like us to have our uh, Bibles open this morning as we uh, continue. Uh, I'm going to, uh, as you have found Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, um, we're going to uh, pray together, shall we? Father, your word tells us uh, that the one whom you esteem is the person who trembles at your word. God, we want to be the type of people who tremble at your word. That, that when your word is read and your word is spoken, we tremble to hear it because it comes with such weight, such authority to us. We recognize that this book that is open before us is not just another piece of human wisdom. It's not just uh, nice poetry and entertaining stories. It's it's not just like a a Hallmark greeting card that, that you might open on your birthday. It's weighty. It's authoritative. It's powerful. It's insightful. Uh, It opens our eyes to see the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we want to be people who tremble at your word. The the things that we are going to look at today are not, at first glance, Father, trembling words. They're they're not um, words of doom or words of... um, that, that immediately draw our attention to the glories of heaven. They're, they're earthy in, in, in many ways. Yet, Father, we who are thirsty, we come to the fountain that is your word asking you to satisfy us. We who are, are your sheep come to you, our shepherd, asking you that you would um, lead us to green pastures. Help us today in your word as we look to see the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to be satisfied there. Do that in us uh, through my fallible uh, mouth uh, into our sinful ears. Penetrate to the soul, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If the year were 1952 instead of 2012 and your marriage was going through uh, difficult days, you might find yourself listening to advice, the advice of a man who was known across the country in the 50s as Mr. Marriage. Maybe some of you remember him. That was the nickname of Paul Papineau. Paul Papineau was the founder and director of the American Family Institute, which he started in 1930 in Los Angeles. Papineau was the founder of the marriage counseling movement in America. Nobody had been talking about marriage counseling the way Papineau was until he started the American Family Institute. And he counseled thousands of couples a year from his clinic. 
Uh, he, his influence spread uh, widely. In the 1950s, he started a column in Ladies' Home Journal. If you've ever read Ladies' Home Journal, he was the author of the column called, Can This Marriage Be Saved? And people would write in and he would offer advice to them. Uh, Dr. Papineau also made regular radio and television appearances. Papineau was not a religious man at all. In fact, he was quite secular and he had some un anti-religious views, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But he was very conservative and traditional in the advice that he gave to uh, couples, and that made him somewhat popular among pastoral and religious counselors. In fact, one of his early assistants is a man that you may know, uh, his, uh, man, uh, this young man who assisted Dr. Papineau early in his, in his own career was a man by the name of James Dobson. Now, uh, two things that you should know about Paul Papineau before you proceed in exploring his uh, counseling. Uh, Papineau's early interest in marriage grew out of his devotion to a science known as eugenics. Now, eugenics was a movement that has its roots very deeply embedded in evolution, and it was wildly popular in the 20th century in America, the early 20th century in America. Teddy Roosevelt, the president, and Woodrow Wilson, also president, both had a great interest in eugenics. Eugenics is the idea that society should encourage healthy and stable people to marry and have lots of children, while those with Uh, disabilities and those with undesirable traits should be permitted from having children. You're going to increase and improve the population through wise human breeding. It's eugenics. Actually, Dr. Papineau, before he started his uh, marriage counseling, was uh, part of a movement in California that enforced sterilization on thousands of people in mental hospitals in California. Uh, and the founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, her name was uh, Margaret Sanger, was an advocate of eugenics. Margaret Sanger started Planned Parenthood with the idea that it was necessary to stop the reproduction of the unfit. Now, the popularity of eugenics diminished significantly after World War II because it was eugenics theories that prompted the Nazis in Germany to incarcerate those they considered genetically inferior, like Jews, put them into concentration camps. Uh, Now, no one wants marriage counseling or family planning from a Nazi, so the eugenics movement passed from the scene after World War II. Uh, It certainly diminished in Papineau's life and thought. He uh, turned from many of those theories and uh, turned his attention again towards marriage counseling. Now, there's something else that you should know about Paul Papineau before you take his advice. Paul Papineau believed that the reason that marriages were struggling so much, actually he was horrified at the statistics about marriage and divorce in the United States when he started the American Family Institute. One in 12 marriages ended in divorce and he was horrified. Um, we would we would be glad if the statistics were that healthy compared to where we are today. But and, and his his understanding of why marriages were falling apart is because men and women were rejecting traditional marriage roles. They were throwing off healthy masculinity and femininity, and this is why marriages, even marriages between genetically superior people, were suffering. 
Now, part of his counseling, if you went for him for help, especially before you got married, is that Papano would give you a masculinity and femininity test to see how much of a man and how much of a woman you were to determine how healthy your marriage would be. Here's some questions from his test. All right, number one. Marigold is a kind of A, fabric, B, flower, C, grain, or D, stone. Question number two, are you extremely careful about your manner of dress? (laughs) Question three, true or false, children should be taught never to fight. Children should be taught never to fight. Now, supposedly your answers to these questions reveal how masculine or feminine you are. If you know that a marigold is a flower, if you're extremely careful about your dress and you say that children should never be taught to fight or taught to never fight, there's a difference, you are feminine. If you don't know anything about marigolds, don't care how you dress and think children should sometimes be encouraged to fight, you are masculine. And your score on this test... (laughs) This stereotypical test that measures largely shallow external characteristics can help determine how successful your marriage will be. Now, if you were sitting here in the room and I said marigold is a, and I named those four things, and you also thought to yourself, it's a color too, you're way on the feminine side, okay? That's just the way it is. Uh, we've been studying together about marriage, and we have been using uh, the book of Ephesians as the launching place for this discussion. We spent the last two weeks, because of that, from Ephesians, talking about roles in marriage. How husbands and wives, according to the Bible, function differently in marriage. Now, you may be tempted to think that what the Bible says, the Apostle Paul and Mr. Marriage Paul, Papineau, agree with one another. You might be tempted to think, yeah, Papineau's teaching traditional marriage, the Apostle Paul's teaching traditional marriage, you're all the same. That is not the case at all. Uh, we do not uh, speak about different roles for husbands and wives because of tradition or culture or uh, we don't do it on the basis of how careful you should be with your clothes. Uh, we uh, base what we understand husbands and wives to do on the gospel. Husbands and wives live out the gospel in their marriages. They both imitate Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and the one who submitted himself to his Father's will. There's a second difference, though, between what Paul Papineau taught and uh, what the Bible says. We believe that marriage is much more than fulfilling roles. Uh, Your role as a husband or wife is not the foundation of your marriage. To describe it the way the Apostle Paul does in chapter 5, you enter into marriage as a godly husband, as an upright, righteous wife. You enter into that role because you are filled with the Spirit and walking in wisdom. That's the foundation of marriage, not your role. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk together about marriage and we're going to move a little bit beyond Ephesians chapter 5 and its description of roles in marriage. And I want to direct your attention to two descriptions for marriage that are found in the Song of Songs, uh, this little book to which you have opened, uh, uh, to which we have opened this morning. 
Now, you may have some familiarity with the Song of Songs. It's a strange book to us. It is basically a long love poem, and it has roots culturally that are very deep in the world of the ancient Near East. And it's kind of a racy book, too, isn't it? Um, The reason that reading this book aloud in the presence of your mother is embarrassing is because of how uh, the husband and wife, the bride and groom in this book, describe one another. I want to read from uh, Song of Songs, verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9 through verse 16. This is one of the more tame parts of the book, so you don't need to cover your children's ears. But we're going to start reading in verse 9, where uh, the bride is describing her husband. Actually, in verse 9, her friends say to her, tell us about your husband, how he is better than other men. All right, look at verse 9. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you charge us so? Verse 10, here's his, her description of him. My lover is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. I'm sure the men, this sounds familiar to you because probably your wife describes you this way all the time, right? Yes, well, let's keep going. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. And here's these two words at the end of verse 16 that are going to be the foundation of what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks. This is my lover. This is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. This is my lover. This is my friend. Two words that the Song of Songs uses to describe marriage. Your marriage is a relationship that is, that is marked by friendship and by sexual intimacy. Today, we're going to talk about the friend aspect of this verse. And then on September 2nd, we're going to talk about the lover aspect of marriage from this verse. This is not the only place in the Bible where the Bible talks about your relationship with your uh, spouse as a friendship. In Proverbs 2.17, uh, the author of Proverbs, Solomon there, is describing a woman negatively. She's an adulterous woman. and He describes her as someone who has left her partner, left her companion. The, the Hebrew word there for companion means special confidant or best friend. There are many words that you could use to describe your uh, husband or your wife. You could use the word partner, spouse, companion. But chief among the list in the categories the Bible wants you to have in your mind is friend. This is my friend. Now, friendship is a significant subject. Uh, What do I mean when I use the word friend? I'm going to borrow Joel Beakey's definition. Here's what he said. Friendship in marriage is the personal bond of a shared life. Friendship in marriage is the personal bond of a shared life. Now, think with me for just a moment about friendship in general. We'll set aside the, just marriage for a moment. Friendship in, in, in life is, 
is the bond between two people that is built on what you share together. Most friendships start with one thing that you share together. You meet somebody at the golf course because you both love golf. Uh, you live in the same neighborhood. You work at the same company. You go to the same church. You're in the same class at school. Like a bridge that connects two land masses, that one thing that you share is the connection upon which the bonds of friendship can be built. And that bond that you have between that other person can grow in, in two different ways. It can grow, first of all, by making more and more connections. So you find out that the person you meet at the golf course not only loves golf, he or she also uh, likes to read Russian literature. <laughs> uh, or he or she um, loves to watch American Idol on television. Or he or she, um, you both served in the army. All these, you're building more bridges, more connections. That's how one way that you can make a friendship grow. The other way that you can make a friendship grow is by increasing, if I can use that bridge analogy, the size of one of those bridges. That is the thing that connects you is big. It's significant. It takes up a lot of your time. Maybe that's the sort of friendship you have with people at work. You don't have very much in common with them except the fact that you spend eight and a half hours a day together. That's a pretty big bridge. Uh, These connections are what you build that bond on. Now, just think about the number of connections, the number of shared things that a husband and wife have together, which is why Joel Beakey uses this term shared life. You and your spouse together are connected. Maybe you're involved in the parenting task together. You uh, live in the same house. You are trying to manage a budget together. You go on vacation with one another. Uh, There's all these connections that are between you and your spouse. And your partnership, your friendship is built on all of those connections. Now, let's stop for a minute and think about some of the implications of this shared life. Uh, Thinking about friendship this way, it speaks to us about why Christians in churches can be friends with one another. This is why Christians are called into fellowship, into union with, with one another. The bridge between you and I as fellow followers of Christ is Christ himself. And it may be, he may be the only point of connection between the two of us. We may have nothing else in common. Uh, we may be from different generations. We may have different tastes. Uh, you may have different, come from different classes, have different ethnic backgrounds. But Christ himself, the gospel is the bridge between us. And he is to be so massive in each of our lives that we can be friends because of his magnificent significance. Again, All other bridges between us might be two lanes, but Christ, because of his excellence and supremacy and because we value him as we do, is a uh, ten-lane, double-decker bridge that connects us together. Now, what that means is the extent that your friends in your mind must be like you or you must find people like you in a church that you might attend That's the extent to which Christ is is minimized in the bonds that you seek to form. In other words, if if you walk into a church and you say, 
There's got to be people my age. There's got to be people in my uh, class. There's got to be people in, with kids my, uh, my, the age of my kids. There's got to be all these other connections, or I don't want to go to that church, or I don't belong in that church. That's the extent to which Christ is a very small bridge. But when you walk in and you say, these people love Christ like I love Christ, and we can be friends because of the double-decker, ten-lane bridge we share together. Now, thinking about that, too, uh, this marriage is the bond of a shared life also helps us understand why Paul in 2 Corinthians talks so much or so clearly about our relationship with unbelievers and the possibility of marrying or dating someone who doesn't share a commitment to Christ. Inevitably, if you have ever been to a youth group in America, if they're talking about dating at any point in time, soon into the conversation, someone will bring up 2 Corinthians 6.14, which says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's an, it's an inevitable thing. And the emphasis was come, would come. Look out for dating or pursuing relationships with, with people who do not share your commitment to Christ. And, and the reason why is you can't share with them what is supposed to be central to your life. Again, if, if I can continue this analogy of Christ being the ten-lane, double-decker bridge that connects you uh, with, with another follower of Christ, if, if they don't have half of the bridge, if they don't have Christ, you, there, there's limits to how you can connect to them. Those who have a vital, vital relationship with Christ cannot successfully build a bond with someone who does not. Paul says, what can light and darkness possibly have in common? And the truth of the matter is that if you find yourself comfortable in a relationship with someone who doesn't share your commitment to Jesus Christ, it means that your commitment to Jesus Christ is not as strong as you claim or as you think. There's just one, one more implication of this for, for your own marriage and building the bond of friendship in your marriage. What this means here, if friendship is the partnership or the bond of a shared life, this means that you can strengthen and feed your marriage by strengthening the connections between you. Some of you may say, I just kind of feel distant from my spouse. My partner, we just kind of feel like we're not as close as we used to be. One of the ways to fix that is to make more bridges or strengthen the bridges that exist. Add to the increase, the health of those bridges. Um, find a new hobby together. Devote specific time to spending with one another. Do stuff that's going to increase that connection that you have. A number of years ago, Gary Smalley did a study across the country who, of couples who described themselves as being happy, and he discovered that they had one, they all had one thing in common, and most of them shared two things in common. All of them, what they all had in common was that they valued time together. So find some way to increase the amount of time that you spend together. Go for a walk. Um, turn the radio off in the car and talk and do something together. And the second thing that many of those happy families had in common is that they liked to go camping. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't have a verse. I don't have a verse for that. I, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I, I Actually, I think, I think camping reduces the number of distractions that you have, that you spend with one another. Unless, I mean, if you take your television camping, okay, don't go anymore. Just stop, all right? It's an insult to the camping industry. But, but uh, uh, this time, building bridges. 
Now, when the bride in the Song of Songs says, this is my lover, this is my friend, she's speaking of the bond between her husband, she and her husband, they, the bond they had built on their shared life. That's, that's what friendship means. And as you think about the story of the Bible... Um, this can take you in a number of different directions. We could, at this point in time, as, as we continue to think about this, move in a number of different directions. We could think about some of the stories of friendship in the Bible, like the, the friendship between David and Jonathan or Ruth and Naomi. Or we could go to the book of Proverbs and look, it has as many, many principles for friendship. Friendship involves honesty, loyalty, transparency, compassion. All those things are found in the book of Proverbs. We could consider today some crucial skills that friends need, crucial friendship skills like forgiveness and communication. I think, though, in all of those areas that we could consider, though, there is a message that is repeated throughout the Bible that friendship must be cultivated. Friendship has to be cultivated. That that friendship with your spouse, that might be one of the challenges in your life. I was talking to somebody this week, and um, he said to me, friendship, my friendship with my wife is just harder than all my other friendships. I don't have to work as hard to be a friend with other people as I do with my spouse. Why is that? Well, a number of reasons why. One, I think it's because you spend a lot more time with your spouse than you do with your other friends. Maybe, two, it's because you and your friend have never had to go grocery shopping together. You've, you've never had to clean a toilet after your friend has thrown up, right? It's different things. It's a different sort of friendship. One of the reasons also maybe cultivating that friendship with your spouse is because your spouse is so much different than you are. They're male. They're female. They're just different than you are. Uh, you're dealing in marriage with a person who is radically different by virtue of his maleness or femaleness, his or her maleness or femaleness. Gary Ricucci gives us a little glimpse into this. He wrote a great book about marriage with his wife called Love That Lasts. I highly recommend that book. He's writing about some of the ways that men and women process things differently. Listen to what he says. When I hear that someone, Gary says, when I hear that someone we know has just had a baby, I ask two questions. Boy or girl, and is everyone healthy? That about does it for me. I know if the gift should be pink or blue and how to pray. Is there more? Apparently a lot more. Because when I mention the birth to Betsy, it invariably, his wife, when I mention the birth to Betsy, it invariably triggers a small avalanche of questions. What's the baby's name? I answer, same as the parents. She asks, Weight and length, and I answer small. It's a baby. She asks, how long was she in transition? And I say, what's transition again? And she asks, how long was the labor? And I answer, just long enough, I guess. Cultivating friendship with someone who is so different than you is one of the ways that God is maturing you. One of the ways he's leading you to growth. That baby conversation calls for patience on the part of both of them, doesn't it? God is cultivating patience in you. I want to talk for the rest of the time that we have left. I want to talk to you about befriending your spouse. And I realize this is applicable to all kinds of, of friendships. 
Uh, but we're talking specifically today about friendship and marriage. So what does it mean to befriend your spouse? And since we've been in the book of Ephesians, I want to unfold some themes. I want to remind you of some of the things that we have found so far in the book of Ephesians uh, to help us. This is the stunning, you're going to be amazed at the brilliance of this deduction. Ephesians 5 comes after Ephesians 1 through 4. It's brilliant, I know. Ephesians 1 through 4 is setting you up through chapter 5. You're supposed to get Ephesians 1 through 4 before you get to Ephesians 5 so that you're shaped and marked by Ephesians 1 through 4 so that when you read Husbands Love Your Wives and Wives Submit to Your Husbands, it all makes sense because you've read the first four chapters. So I want to summarize a couple things that are in those first four chapters that are about union and fellowship between believers as the platform for talking about how to befriend your spouse. Three things here are some principles for befriending your spouse. Number one, rejoice in God's grace in your spouse's life. Rejoice in God's grace in your spouse's life. This is where Ephesians begins, doesn't it? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is joy over grace in Ephesians chapter 1. It calls us to contemplate and consider and celebrate God's gifts of grace. And as a friend to your spouse, you have the privilege of celebrating God's grace in their lives. There's joy for you. There's glory for God in thinking about God's sovereign mercy and thinking about how we've been redeemed by Christ and how we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, 5, we rejoice because we've been made alive in Christ. We, were, who, we who were estranged have been brought near. We've made, been made privy to the mystery of God's new work in the church We've been brought into contact with the love of Christ. There's grace upon grace in Ephesians 1 through 4 for us to celebrate. Marriage to a brother or sister in Christ provides you with the opportunity to affirm and to celebrate and to anticipate God's gracious work in someone else's life. I think this is maybe what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 3, where he says, Husbands, love your wives. Treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of God, the grace of life. Treat her as someone else who has received God's grace. How does it change how you think about your husband or your wife if you see them most clearly through the lens of God's work? If you think, if you discipline yourself to think, the person that I'm sitting next to is the object of the affection of Jesus Christ, is someone to whom Christ himself has said, I'm going to finish my work that I started in you. Does that change how you think about that person? I have hanging in my office an old blanket. It's an old wool blanket and it was made for a horse. It's about 70 years old. You, it's got holes in it. It's scratchy. It's an old bull. If you saw it at a garage sale, you would never buy it. But it's hanging in my office because it was my great-grandparents, and they used it for their horse, which was a much-loved animal in their home. My great-grandparents had three boys, and they loved the horse more than any of them, I think. Uh, my great-grandmother stitched the horse's name on that horse blanket. So you can see the stitching uh, my great-grandmother did 65 years ago in that blanket. The blanket is, is not worth it anything, but it's valuable to me beyond what it actually costs. 
If your husband or wife is a recipient of the grace of God, they are the object of his most gracious work, and their value is beyond their cost. You have the opportunity to affirm that and to celebrate that. Can I suggest to you that that, that affirmation, when, when you see the grace of God in your spouse's life, if, if you're a husband, this is particularly important. I try to uh, mention this in, in uh, my premarital counseling sessions. If your wife dedicates herself, as I think the Bible calls uh, wise to, to your home and to your children, and, and she values the work that she has as a wife and a mother, and that's really important to her, if she does that, she is not going to receive the applause and the affirmation of most of society. She'll not be praised in magazines. She'll not be featured in headlines. In fact, some people will wonder, why are you throwing your education away? Why aren't you out there doing something important in the world instead of taking care of your, your house, your husband, your, your kids? Why are you wasting all of your potential? That's the question she will be bombarded with and she will receive. And so, husbands, it is your privilege and your responsibility to be that voice that says to her, you are an honorable woman because by the grace of God you have given yourself to us. You are worthy of respect. This is one of the things that Proverbs 31 says. The Proverbs 31 husband praises his wife in the city gates. Affirmation of the grace of God. Befriending your spouse means rejoicing in God's grace in them. Second, though, it means that you receive your spouse with all of his or her imperfections. You receive your spouse with all of their imperfections. Ephesians, as you recall, is nothing but honest to us about our condition before God, isn't it? If you wanted to go through, you could look through the first four chapters. What does the book of Ephesians say about our condition before God? We are dead in transgressions and sins. Spiritually, we are like walking zombies. We are prone to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature, Proverbs, uh, Ephesians 4. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. We are under God naturally because of our lifelong record of disobeying and dishonoring our Creator. We are utterly unattractive spiritually, even repellent and repugnant. I have heard a number of people, they talk about the trends that are happening and and who knows what's going to happen in the future with telecommunications and the wonder of the Internet, right? The Internet is the greatest source of communication that human beings have ever conceived of and most people use it to send out pictures of their cats. Uh, Do you You have a friend, I know you do, everybody does. It's the curse of the Internet. You have a friend who loves to post pictures of cats on their Facebook page, or email you pictures of adorable cats. All right, it's part of the fall. That's just the way it is. You have somebody in your life who does that. If you are that person, I'm sorry. Uh, cats doing adorable things. All right, I, I like dogs much better than cats, but I'm, I am not so heartless a person that when I don't see a cute little picture of a kitten, I don't at least find it a little bit like, aw. Yeah, I mean, just a little, right? Just a little. The Bible says that when God looks at us, he does not, in our condition, see anything worth awing and ooing over. God doesn't look at us and say, aw, ooh, cute. 
We are by nature objects of God's righteous wrath. We're futile. We're darkened in our thinking, Paul writes. Our rebellion against God extends even to the way we think. And, and we are so callous to real sensation that we're looking for it, Paul says in Ephesians 4, anywhere we can find it. I just want some central gratification. I'll look anywhere for it. Ephesians does not paint an attractive picture, but it's real. And this realistic understanding of human nature is precisely where a Christian understanding of love, marriage, confronts romantic love. If you ask most people to describe what sort of person they hope to marry, they will say they want to find someone who attracts them, someone they find beautiful and appealing without flaws that are annoying. Someone who satisfies you. Someone who has as little baggage as possible. I want romance, they say. I want someone who makes me feel good. <laughs> now, Christianity does not say that the goal of marriage is to try to find somebody who makes you feel bad. That's not the goal. But it wants to be realistic about what marriage to a sinful, flawed person can and cannot do. There was a study several years ago from the National Marriage Project. Actually, the study was done by a man by the name of David Papineau, whose father, Paul, was also a well-known marriage researcher. Uh, the, the study was called Why Men Won't Commit. Uh, men are often accused of being commitment-phobic, and statistically, it seems like they have a point. Why are men commitment-phobic? The study wanted to find out. According to this study, men are looking for a soulmate, Someone who compliments them perfectly. Now, you should have a lot in common with your spouse. But this idea of someone who is a perfect match for me, someone uh, whom there is uh, as little as possible disagreement, somewhat unrealistic. And it gets worse. What the men studied meant when they said they were looking for a soulmate is they wanted someone with whom they have excellent sexual chemistry and someone who will never insist or expect that they change. I want to marry someone who is my perfect match, with whom I have great sex, and who will never expect me to change, ever. Good luck. I'm a Calvinist. Good luck, I say, right? It's not going to happen. It's completely unrealistic. Why? Because we're dead in our transgressions and sins. We are uh, objects of God's wrath. We are uh, looking to have our sensual needs, desires gratified. No one will meet those standards. And inevitably, in your marriage, you will find flaws. In fact, your marriage will uncover some of those flaws. Your wedding ring is a circle, just like a magnifying glass. And you put the ring on your finger, and all of a sudden you see through it, and you see all kinds of things in your spouse that you didn't see before, that you didn't know. That either they were carefully concealing, or they didn't know about themselves. And seeing those things can be grievous and devastating. I, I know that I'm talking to people who have come into contact with the ugliness of your spouse's sin, and it has caused you significant and deep pain. Since I'm speaking to the congregation gathered today, let's confess that what Paul says about human nature is true about all of us. I'm not trying to excuse our behavior, uh, but let's just be realistic. Have you ever heard somebody say, you Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites? 
You know what you should say in response to that is, yeah, we really are. We don't live up to our own standards at all. But one of the things that I think is true about most Christian hypocrites is that they know they're hypocrites, unlike most non-Christian hypocrites. Uh, We don't live up to the standards that the Bible calls us to. Um, And there's no use pretending that that's not true. I've said this before. God forbid that we be a church of people who sing and sing about God's grace and then pretend that we don't really need it. We are those that proclaim that we're separated from God because of our sin. We're destined naturally for an eternity's worth of punishment. We are those who have been loved by Jesus Christ, who has come to die for us in our place. He rose again and offers life and forgiveness to all who receive those gracious gifts by faith, by turning to him and trusting in what he has done as a foundation of life. Part of befriending your spouse means receiving your spouse with all of their imperfections. And, and so far here, as, as we've been moving through these things, we have two contradictions, two seemingly impossible contradictions, right? With eyes wide open, we see flaws and foolishness and sensuality, and we also see grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So how do those two things come together? You are married to someone who is deeply flawed, sinfully so, uh, object of God's wrath by nature, and you are married to someone who has been an object of God's grace. Grace upon grace upon How do those two things come together? Here's number three and how to befriend your spouse. Recognize the role you play in your spouse's growth. Recognize the role you play in your spouse's growth. Again, your spouse is a deeply flawed person who is a recipient of the grace of God. And in that, you have a role to play. Uh, This is part of what Proverbs says about friendship, right? Uh, Proverbs 27.9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. In other words, when you offer wise counsel to your wife, you are, as it were, anointing her with sweet perfume. Proverbs 27:17 later in that chapter as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another when you speak wisely to your husband's life you are sharpening him This is an area I know where husbands and wives have and can sin against one another But love and submission do not mean ignoring or refusing to talk about areas in which you need to grow or in which your sin is particular apparent This is an issue in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4 says, We have each received grace from God, and we each build into one another's lives so that we are more like Jesus Christ. We don't just rejoice in God's grace, we dispense God's grace. To marry someone, as Tim Keller has said, is to say to them, I see God at work in your life, and I will give my life to be part of that change process. Uh, you've heard this old line, I think, from Michelangelo. Michelangelo, of course, the great sculptor who out of marble carved that wonderful statue of David that's on display in some museum in the world. And somebody asked Michelangelo, how did you make this sculpture? And, and Michelangelo said, I started with a block of marble and cut away everything that wasn't David. And you are married to someone who is in process. Uh, God is carving away in their lives everything that does not look like Jesus Christ. 
Romantic love wants to see a finished statue. Christian love is willing to, by God's grace, be part of the chipping process. This is one of the most difficult and dangerous parts of marriage. It's an area that can be fraught with pride and impatience and discouragement. The Bible talks about the poisonous influence of a nagging wife and the dangerous, uh, destructive tides of an angry husband. You cannot nag, resent, shout, or manipulate your spouse into godliness. That does not work. Ephesians 4.24 has the formula, speak the truth in love. And I want to finish this morning by giving you four ways to be involved in this process of transformation in your spouse's life. Number one, pray for your spouse. Pray for your spouse. This should be obvious, right? But, but do you do that? Do you pray concerning their temptations, their pressures? Pray for the development of the fruit of the Spirit in his or her life. This is important for you to hear in particular because some of you are sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I'm supposed to affirm God's grace, but I, I don't see God at work in my husband's life at all. I don't think my, really, my wife really cares about Christianity. I'm not even sure she's saved. What am I... This isn't helping affirm, I say that at the beginning. Here's where you're involved in this process. Because you pray regardless of the level of growth you see, or even if there's little interest in growth in your spouse. Number two, invite your spouse's evaluation. Invite your spouse's evaluation. Cultivate in your marriage an atmosphere in which it is natural and good to speak to one another about your patterns and habits and attitudes. You should sit down with your spouse sometime and and start this way. Sweetheart, um, I promise that I will not make excuses and I promise that I will not get angry. What sinful patterns in my life do you think should be my priority for growth? And do you have any suggestions about how I can try to improve? You should try that conversation. It will probably be eye-opening. Keep your promise not to make excuses or get angry, though. Number three, speak specifically and compassionately to one another. Um, Husbands and wives, because of Ephesians 5, do this differently. But if you approach your spouse, speak specifically and calmly and compassionately. You know, honey, I have noticed a few things that cause me concern. Is now a good time to talk about them or, or can we talk about them sometime? Number four here, practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. I have a book on my shelf called The Love List. It's not a particularly deep book. But, but it gives a, a list of things that husbands and wives are supposed to do on a regular basis to keep their marriage healthy. And, and one of those things is called take out the trash. Huh. That is, forgive. Get rid of everything that is coming between you. Just let it go. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And in doing so, again, you see how the gospel infuses itself into a marriage. We proclaim a message about a Savior who knows us completely and died on the cross for us so that we can be forgiven. And in your marriage, this means that you can know intimately and forgive faithfully. And that's part of befriending completely. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and I am grateful to you for the men and women in this congregation, those who are here uh, today. 
of some of them, that they, we, we come with all kinds of concerns in the relationships that we have. Some, when I talk about marriage, it's just a reminder of the loneliness that they feel. Uh, the, the desperation they have. They, they want to be married. Or they lost their spouse recently and they just miss and long for that sort of relationship. Uh, Father, I, I pray for them that you would remind them that indeed in Jesus we have a friend and what a friend he is. And that in the congregation of people who know Jesus Christ, there are big and deep and long and wide bridges between us. Father, I pray for the husbands and wives that are here this morning who in particular today are feeling the sting of their spouse's sin. Their spouse's uh, sensuality, foolishness, um, irritability, anger, um, addiction, addictive behaviors. Father, I pray that you would enable those spouses to speak compassionately, specifically, with grace and following a heap of prayer. Father, would you give husbands and wives in this room the, the courage to build more bridges to their spouse and to strengthen the ones that are there? Again, Father, we don't want to be influenced by tradition. We want to be influenced by the gospel and, and have spouses that are Beautiful friendships. Change us and transform us so that's true. We give ourselves over to you for that end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.